Well, we continue in our worship now as we open the Word of God. I would invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 with me. We've been making our way through this great epistle. We have been now for a few weeks in the third chapter. I'm going to read this morning just from verse 7 down through verse 11. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul in this passage and in these verses really expresses three foundational aspirations of the Christian's heart. We find in the Apostle Paul what we should find if we are in Christ as we look at the desires of our own heart and soul. Three foundational aspirations of the Christian's heart. And we'll just take them as our heads as we move through this morning as Paul has laid them out in the text of these scriptures. At the end of verse 8, he says that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That is Paul's first great aspiration. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. You'll notice that there's another I may statement in verse 10, that I may know him. And then in verse 11, there is yet another, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What did Paul want? He wanted to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to know Christ, and to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Is there something of that aspiration in your soul this morning? We might think of it this way. Paul is laying out really somewhat of a progress in, in salvation in the Christian life as he thinks about it. Paul wanted to be justified. That is to say that he, he wanted the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. Secondly, he wanted to be sanctified. That is, he wanted to grow in Christ's likeness, to know him and to be conformed to him. And thirdly, he wants to be glorified. He wants to be changed and to dwell with God in resurrected life. 
Beloved, these motivations are the very marks of a regenerate life. They are the heartbeat of the newborn in Christ. And that heartbeat only gets stronger and more earnest as you grow in Christ. Let's look at these aspirations one by one. Paul begins by saying that he wants to gain Christ and to be found in him. And this is largely and briefly by way of review. But look back at verse 8. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul, you'll remember, is facing this question, how is the sinner made right with a holy God? How can that happen? God is too pure to look on sin. God cannot be sullied by sin, and he will not endure sinners. So how is it that we as sinners then are made right or fit for heaven? How is it that we are made right with this holy God? How is it again that we are reconciled to him though we are sinful? Another way of thinking about it is where will I get the righteousness necessary to find acceptance with God in the day of judgment? And Paul says negatively that it is not by works of the law. Law is not a path to relationship with God. You cannot pursue the route of being good enough in yourself to attain to the holiness that God requires. Romans 3.20, by works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You might be able to keep up a good enough show. You might be able to maintain a holiness of, of life that somehow in the sight of men made men think, wow, you're really a cut above. But in the sight of God, no flesh will be justified according to law. The believer, Paul says in verse 4, is one who puts no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. And so it is not our righteousness that gains acceptance with God or that will grant us entrance into heaven. None of us are going to heaven because we are, you know, the, the good sort of outweighs the bad. God does not grade on a curve. It's an A plus. It's 100% or it is nothing. It is judgment. It is failure. None of us should be thinking somehow I've done enough to warrant acceptance with God. We are sinful we are fallen, we are lost, we are incapable of erasing the sins of the past. We cannot fix that sin problem that we have had up to this point. We will, if we believe the, the scriptures, continue to sin going forward. There is no way to right the ship in and of ourselves. There is nothing we can do to restore that relationship with God ourselves. There is no penance that we can do as payment. You cannot make reparations for your sins. 
our righteousness. The best we do is but filthy rags before God. All of it tainted. All of it defiled. It does not measure up. And so Paul says, look, looking back now to verses 5 and 6, all that, all that I was by virtue of my birth, I was born right. I was a Jew. I practiced all the Hebrew customs. I was circumcised the eighth day. My parents were conservatives. They were ultimately set and bent on, on pleasing God by living right. Beyond that, not only was I born right, I behaved right. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I sought to maintain the law. And externally, if you'd have looked at my life, you would have said, I can't find anywhere where he's violated the law of God. But Paul knew by the Holy Spirit his own heart that there was nothing good in him. That is in his flesh. The wanting of good was there, but the doing of good was not. And he knew that when the law said, thou shalt not covet, it produced coveting in him of every kind. He started looking in the dark corners of his heart. And by the Holy Spirit, he understood that while outwardly he appeared to live right, inwardly he was a mess. So Paul understood that even by his religious zeal, that it would gain him nothing with God. So where then is this righteousness to be found where Paul says positively that it is through faith in Christ Jesus? Beloved, what do you need to be right with God? You need two things essentially to be right with God. You need forgiveness for the sins you've committed And you need absolute, perfect righteousness of life. You must be forgiven all of your sins, and you must live a perfectly righteous life. You must be clean through and through. You must be, as Jesus says, holy as God is holy. And when you read those two things, when you, when you think about that, that I've got to be forgiven of sins that I've committed, but there's no penance to be done. There's no payment that I can make for for the sins that stain my soul. And when you understand that you must have a perfectly righteous life, you look back and say, well, I haven't done it so far. And you look forward and you say, there's no hope for me going forward. Your heart begins to sink, doesn't it? Just to hear that, we would utterly despair if God had not initiated toward us in love in the person of his son. In Christ, we find a pure and infinitely worthy substitute who bears the punishment and the guilt of our sins. In Christ, we find a sinless substitute to live for us the life that that we've never been able to attain to. In Christ, we have a vicarious sacrifice who who substitutes himself on the cross to bear the wrath for the sins that you and I have committed. And in Christ, we we have provided for us a vicarious righteousness, a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that someone else has earned, not us, that is credited to our account. All we've to do is receive it. We cannot earn it. 
Brothers and sisters, there is but one mediator who can reconcile God and sinners, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And this is why Paul expresses the very aspiration of his heart that I've got to be found in him. I have got to gain Christ because apart from him, I'm in trouble. Paul says, I must be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. That's not what I want. That's not where it's found. It's found through faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul craves this perfect righteousness, God's righteousness, that's given freely to all who would look and lean on Christ. God is the source of that righteousness. Christ is the ground of that righteousness. And faith is the means by which it is received. And this is how a sinner is justified before God. It is to be found in Christ. Now, I want you to pause with me because most of that at this point has been review. And as I said last week, it's no trouble to review those details with you. That's what we're about, yes? Yes. It is those things upon which our soul hangs, yes? Yes. But can I say to you, there's more to the Christian life than those facts, Think about it. It wasn't enough for Paul that he had punched his ticket for heaven. It was not enough for Paul that he, he had fire insurance to, to cover him in the day of wrath. Paul never fixated on a decision or the fact that somehow Jesus bid him and therefore he came forward with every head bowed and every eye closed. He, he never got consumed with the reality of having prayed a prayer. Paul knew nothing of this sort of point in time salvation that our culture just thrives on. That is the gospel message if you listen to it preached. Everything's focused on this decision for Jesus praying the prayer, walking the aisle, raising the hand. Beloved, don't ever put confidence in that. The decision to follow Christ is a decision that's made day by day as you put your feet on the floor. Life in Christ is bigger than a one-time event, some sort of past profession. And I know the temptation is strong to want to look back and, and find some date and some time where, where that was the decisive point. Paul certainly had that, didn't he? Didn't he? He was on a road, you remember that. And he had an encounter with the risen Lord and he got blinded by it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I love that. Who are you? What? He wanted to know who this was, that he was, he was being engaged by. But if you think about it, that day on that Damascus road was not for Paul the focal point of his life. That was just day one. That was the start of knowing his God. That was the start 
of a relationship with Christ that would grow and would flourish and would be the consuming passion of Paul's heart. It was just the first step in a joyful, eternal journey. You see, that's what I want you to see in this text as we come to it is that there is progress here. This text is moving forward toward a glorious goal. Salvation, beloved, is not stagnant. It is a river. It is moving forward and it is moving upward. It is going somewhere. Look at Philippians 3 and verse 20. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Do you see that he's looking beyond his citizenship on earth? Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait. You want to know what I'm doing? I'm eagerly waiting for a Savior. I'm a little bit impatient. I'm longing for him. I'm looking to him. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Do you see that Paul was not content to simply acknowledge Jesus as Lord and then go on living his life on this earth with this world being his primary pursuit? Can you see that? How is it for you, beloved? Paul's motivation to gain Christ and to be found in him inspired still a greater, another ambition, if you will, in his heart. And we find it in verse 10. This is our second point, that I may know him. I want to gain Christ, yes. I want to be found in Christ, yes. But beyond that, I want to know Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Listen, you must know something to be saved. That is true. But can I also say you must know someone to be saved. Everyone here who longs for salvation must intellectually must understand some details. You must understand that you're a sinner in need of salvation. You must understand that you cannot do anything to save yourself. You must understand that God sent forth his son in love, and that son is fully God and fully man, and therefore he could throw an arm around a sinner and an arm around his father, and he can reconcile God and man. You must know that Jesus is the only savior of sinners. You must know that he died for the guilt and penalty of your sin. You must know that he rose from the dead the third day. You must know that you need to repent of sin and self and place your trust in Christ alone. These are all the facts of the gospel. They must be known. They must be affirmed. They must be ultimately trusted in sincerity of faith. But the facts about Jesus fall far short of knowing Jesus. Do you remember the Pharisees who spent their life memorizing the Bible and yet Jesus said it overtly to them. You know neither me nor my father. They knew all kinds of factual information. So many people in our day and age treat Jesus as if he were an insurance salesman, salesman hawking fire insurance. 
They look at him and they say, yeah, I need insurance from the day of wrath. And so they sign the contract and for the nominal fee of saying you believe in him and giving a little money to the church, somehow then he is bound and beholden to protect your life. I mean, it's just a contract. It's just the way it works. He said he'll give me life if I believe and I do a few things and therefore I sign on the dotted line. He's my agent. He gives me the fire insurance. I give him a little, you know, a little something, a little nominal fee and lo and behold, I'm good to go. But you see, there's no vital relationship between you, the consumer, and him, the provider. That is not the way the Bible speaks about salvation. It's not a mere business transaction. It would be better to think about salvation in terms of marriage. You know how it went for you if you're married. You meet someone and you begin to get acquainted. There's an interest and an intrigue in your heart all of a sudden. You want to spend more time. You want to know that individual better. And so you spend more time. And before you know it, the, the interest is mutual. And then what? Someone pops the question and you, you get engaged. And yet there are still levels of intimacy that haven't been achieved yet. And so it, it goes then to the aisle and you walk down and you put the ring on the finger and you, you sign the marriage license and he says, wilt thou and thou wilt. And, and, and you go through that whole thing. And, and what is it? You look at all of that and you realize that your wedding day was just the very beginning of a relationship that will go on and on and on and on. There's so much to know. It's not about the ring. It's not about the license. It's not about the contract and the fact that we had a ceremony. All those things are true, but what it's really about is you. You're the object of my affection. You are the one I'm consumed with. I want a relationship with you that is greater and stronger and more important to me than any other human relationship on earth, which is why Jesus says, if you don't love me more than father or mother or your children, then you're not worthy of me. Oh, may we repent from that mindset that this is just some sort of arrangement that we have with God. Beloved, this is Paul's vision of salvation. This relationship that he has with the living Christ. He wants to know Christ, not just know stuff about him. This is eternal life, says John 17, 3 that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, it's all bound up in this experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word is gnosko, to know, to perceive, 
to understand by personal experience. When he says he wants to know Christ, he's not talking about here. He's talking about here. He does want to know him, of course, intellectually and as he's revealed himself in the word, but it's beyond that. He wants to know him personally, which is why Paul already talked about it in verse 8, didn't he? Look back at it. He says, more than that, I count everything lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You hear how personal it is for Paul, how relational. You see, Paul wanted to be found in Christ. That's a positional statement. That's an objective reality through which he found objective justification. He found righteousness. He found a right relationship with God. He was declared not guilty. He was given a righteousness which was not his own because he was in Christ. But when Paul says that I may know him, he's speaking at a subjective level. This isn't a positional thing so much as it is a relational thing. It's experiential. When one is made a new creature in Christ, you have a new heart and a new life and a new spirit, and there comes with that package a growing preoccupation with the Lord Jesus. In the words of Paul, he becomes what? Your life. He's everything to you. He's everything to you. He's all the world to you. There, there, there comes a longing to know him better, to be more like him. There's this growing anticipation and, and discontentment with your own sinfulness and your own frailty and your own fallenness. And there's just a, a longing, a growing passion to be made into the likeness of the one who saved you, to be conformed to his image, to behold him and to become like him. And what a radical shift that is. Do you remember the days when you once avoided him? You once ran from him because he was your judge. But now things are radically different and he has become to you all the world. And where at one point you were preoccupied with your earthly passions and with your material possessions and with with all the the proud attainments of this world, now all that stuff, you basically can care less. Because if I have Christ, I have everything. The rest of it can all be taken from me. I just need to know him and to understand him and to draw nearer to him. You might even say that the believer's heart and soul are wrapped up in Jesus Christ, consumed with him. Paul says, there's a powerful ambition in my life, and that is to know him. Now, pay attention here, because I think verse 10 is not as clear as it could be in the English. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, when he adds those two conjunctions, and and and, it sounds like he's separating out things. I want to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That is not what he's saying. The dominant thought is, I want to know him. 
and what he's dealing with here is the way, the means by which he will know Christ better. You might say it this way, that I may know him, yes, the power of his resurrection and the partnership in his sufferings. You see, when Paul expresses this yearning to know Christ, he doesn't have in mind this factual knowledge, but experiential knowledge of him. He wants to know Christ by experiencing, first of all, the power that was evident in Jesus when he was raised up from the dead. And secondly, he wants to experience fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. Occasionally, you'll hear of some, somebody or some group of people who wish to better understand the life and times of some historical figure. And so, uh, what do they do? They, they set out on some kind of adventure to visit ver- various places and maybe to dress up in, in costume or to, to carry on. I think I've told you this story before that one time I was up on a mountain on a motorcycle sort of congratulating ourselves. There were three of us from this congregation riding. By the way, I won't tell you who the other two are. But we were up on top of this mountain and, and, uh, and we were sort of congratulating ourselves on how difficult the road had been. It's called the Lolo Motorway in, in, in Idaho and partially in Montana, part of the Bitterroot Range. And we get up to the top and over the top of the hill we meet a bunch of Model Ts coming the other way with, with people dressed in period costume in their little velvet hats and bow ties and puttering their way up this very difficult road and we realized that really we hadn't accomplished much. <laughs> well, it got me thinking. That was part of the, the Lewis and Clark expedition, by the way, on that low, low motor road. And it, let's say you wanted to learn about, you wanted to know Lewis and Clark. You wanted to know them. You could go down to the local junior college and take a class on westward expansion, couldn't you? And part of that class, maybe one period, would be given to talking about Lewis and Clark. And you could read the books and you could listen to the lecture and you could study the geography of the maps and you'd be told by the professor the kind of challenges they faced. That's one way to know Lewis and Clark. Or, one better, I suppose, you could buy a plane ticket into St. Louis, Missouri, and you could get on a, on a bus there, and that bus would take you to various sites along the way that were traveled by Lewis and Clark, and you could, from your cushy seat and with your chilled drink and between bites of a catered meal, you could sort of look out and hear the bus driver, the tour guide, give you some information. And you could see it with your own eyes and you could imagine it in your own mind what it must have been like. Or you could retrace the route yourself in time period garb. You could don your leather chaps and you could put on your boots and your wool mittens And you could spend the next two years of your life crashing through the rapids in a hand-hewn canoe that you dug by your own efforts. You could hunt for wild game with a musket. You could engage with potentially hostile Native Americans. You could 
cross the merciless mountain terrain. You could encounter the bitter cold in those winters. You could understand in the valleys what the sweltering heat was like as many of them gave way to heat exhaustion. You could experience for yourself the kind of hunger that they experienced which led them to eat their own dogs. Their journals speak of grizzly bears and of wolves and of snakes and of mosquitoes so thick that their eyes swelled shut. Now, who would know Lewis and Clark better? Those who took it at the local JC? Those who viewed it from an air-conditioned bus? Or those who lived it? You see, this is what Paul is saying when he says, I want to know Christ. It's infinitely greater than the, the illustration I give, of course, because we're not trying to know a couple of dead explorers. We're, we're, we're in relationship with the living Christ who lives within us by virtue of his Holy Spirit who abides with us and we in him. And the point that I'm trying to make and that Paul is trying to make is that he is not content to know Jesus from afar. It's not okay to have a, an association with Jesus. To just have book learning. He wants a living, dynamic experience of the risen Christ in his life day by day. Day. He says, I want resurrection power. I want to see the power of his resurrection. I want that in my life. He wants an ever-increasing supply of the power that raised Jesus from the dead, manifested in his life, coursing through his spiritual veins. Why? Because he had a heart's desire to be holy. He wanted to be like Christ. Dunamis, energy, might, power, that which overcomes resistance, overcomes obstacles, the power to achieve, the power to conquer. Turn with me quickly, just back to the left, a book, and look at Ephesians chapter 1. We saw this before, but I want to remind you, Paul says he's praying for the Ephesians, and he here's the content of his prayer. He says in verse 16, I don't cease to give thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, what? That God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. To know Christ, see that? I pray that the eyes of your heart, he's talking about spiritual realities here, may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, of the inheritance of in, his, in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Do you see what he's praying? That we would know Christ and that we would be that we would come to some understanding of the power that he has granted to us, that resurrection power of life, which becomes then what? A divine enablement 
to live the kind of life that Christ calls us to, to live a life worthy of the gospel. You see, it's that resurrection power that enabled Paul to understand what it was to live the kind of life that Jesus Christ lived. If he can know that sort of spiritual horsepower in his life, if he could harness the strength of Christ's might, if he could see it unleashed in his life and realized in his daily experience, well, then he would come to know his Savior better. See, that's what he wants. You can go over a little further to the left, Romans chapter 6, where he speaks about these same things. He's speaking of our union with Christ, of our being in Christ, as being baptized, verse 3, into his death, into Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too, note this, might walk in newness of life. You see, as a believer, you were baptized into Christ's death. You were unified with him. You were there with him spiritually. And you were also buried with him, and you were also raised up with him. But what Paul is thinking about here in Philippians is this later statement that he might walk in newness of life. I want to know that power in my life so that I might not continue to walk in old patterns. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, might, our body of sin, might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's what Paul wants. I want to live to God like Jesus. I want that power in my life. Therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you obey its lusts. Paul wanted to know that mighty, life-giving, sin-resisting, power in his life. He wanted the enablement to live as Christ lived, power over sin, power over temptation, power for service, power in trials, power to live faithfully, power to walk obediently. Steve Lawson puts it this way, Paul wants to be a powerhouse for Christ. He needs this power to live a godly life, to resist temptation and meet every challenge within the will of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is what Paul wants in his life. Beloved, would you like to see that power realized in real time more and more in your life? Is that a passion of your heart? Paul also wanted the fellowship of his sufferings in conformity to his death. What's he getting at? Fellowship has the idea of joint participation. This is another aspect of knowing Christ, sharing in his sufferings. Think of it for a moment, beloved. You know this, don't you? You do know this. You have suffered in your life. You know what it's like to have someone come alongside of you and say, yeah, I lost my child too. Yeah, I've been through chemo too. Yeah, my husband left me too. 
you know the comfort, you know the fellowship, the intimacy that is spawned out of that, right? This is Paul saying, look, I want to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. You see, those who suffer in the likeness of their Savior know him. There's a fellowship in this. And Peter expresses Paul's thinking almost to a T in 1 Peter 4.1. He says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see, Paul wants to know Christ by sharing in his sufferings along the way to glory. This is so vital to understand this. This will change your day-to-day if you can hang on to this. There is a pattern laid out in Scripture that is found throughout, really, that there is suffering on the way to glory. That is God's way. That is God's way for his son. That is God's way for you. There is suffering on the way to glory. And we all share in it because this is God's way. What did Jesus say to the Emmaus disciples as they encountered him? Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to... Suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the direction? Do you see that it is cross before the crown? And Paul understands this and he is embracing this here. And it is a very fundamental principle of the Christian life to follow in the footsteps of Christ who left us an example, Peter says, that we should follow. 1 Peter 1.11 speaks of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Hebrews 12, 2, that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, what? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It was the cross first. The joy came later. This is the pathway, beloved, to glorification. It is sanctification through suffering. Acts 14, 22, Paul and Barnabas, it says, were encouraging the souls of the disciples. Yeah, how did they encourage them? What did they say? They were encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, you ready to be encouraged? Here it is. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, why is that an encouraging statement? Because these people were going through tribulation. And he was telling them, listen, you've got to understand that this is the way it is. This is not your best life now. This is not. That is a lie. Joel Osteen is a heretic. I'll say it again if you need it. He is exposed and that is false teaching. Don't be lured in. All of that health, wealth, and prosperity nonsense. Everything you find on TN, whatever it is, TNT, sports, TNN, TBN. There, TBN, that's it. When you find that stuff, turn from it. Beloved, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, All of those guys, you find them, turn away. Don't look and don't listen. It's a lie. See the pattern in the scripture. 
you will suffer many tribulations before you enter the kingdom of God. This is just the way it is. Romans 8, verses 16 to 18, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I love that thought. The Spirit's going to convey to me that I'm a, I'm a child of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, I love it if... If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also later, what? Be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. But you won't see it now with your eyeballs. You must see it with the eyes of faith because we live by what is unseen, not by what is seen. And so Paul is echoing this very thing in the book of Philippians that gospel suffering is normal for the Christian. Jesus said it. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world, what? Hate you. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, and they did, they will also persecute you. Paul spoke with the same certainty that everyone, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will in fact be persecuted. And Peter shepherded the suffering churches of his day saying, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. Beloved, this is our calling. Chapter four of that same first epistle, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? <laughs> because at the revelation of his glory, you will rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We could just keep going. There's no need to. But I do want to remind you, again, if you're in Philippians, that Paul's already addressed this a couple of times. Chapter 1 and verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, no, you've been double-graced, to you it has also been given to suffer for his sake. Chapter 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He suffered humiliation. He suffered rejection. He suffered on the cross. And what was the end of all of that suffering? He was given a name which is above every name. Do you see that glory comes? And glory is coming your way too if you are in Christ. Don't be discouraged at the suffering and the difficulty all the battle that the flesh brings to your life, all the battle that you find in relating to others, all the way that sin torments and troubles and temptations come and all of that. I know it's heavy and it feels like a battle and thus it is. But this is God's way. 
Paul says, I embrace that suffering. I want to know him and know fellowship with him in that suffering. I want to be made like Jesus and I want to know what it is to be rejected by this world. I want to know what it is to do good to people only to be kicked in the teeth for the goodness that I've done. I want to know what it is to pour out myself, to spend and be expended on behalf of others that I might know in time the joy and the glory and the wonder that is to be revealed. Beloved, I ask you again, is that in your heart? Paul has been justified not trusting in his own righteousness, but finding it in Christ through faith. And Paul is being sanctified, waiting experientially to know Christ, his, his power and to live a holy life and the fellowship of his sufferings, which will, will, is the result of a godly life in this world. He wants to be like Christ, and all of this leads us to the third and final ambition of Paul in this text, and that is this, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You ask Paul, why did you count it all rubbish? Why did you abandon all of your self-righteousness? Why have you entrusted yourself to Christ? Why are you seeking to know him and to see the power of his resurrection manifest in your life? Why are you willing to endure the suffering and follow in the footsteps of Christ? Why are you willing to take up your cross and deny yourself? And he would give you this answer that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's what I want. That's the goal. That's the aim. That's the consummation of all of this. Beloved, again, challenge yourself. Is this the focal point of life on this planet for you? That day, that hour. What are you saying, Dave? There's nothing here that we should delight in? There's no pleasure that we can take? No. We give thanks to God, don't we? Because he's the giver of all good things. We, we, we're concerned with the matters of this life, but we understand that when the giver of life and the giver of all good things gives those things, we don't idolize this world. We don't idolize life on this planet. We don't idolize the goodness of his gifts to the neglect of pursuing and loving and worshiping and knowing him. That's just all part of knowing him, isn't it? When you bite into that piece of pineapple and your tongue rejoices and it sends your soul singing, you don't just run to the market to buy another pineapple. You drop to your knees and you exalt in the God who created pineapple and taste buds. Right? We get this. Paul was okay with a good pineapple. And he was not indifferent to the matters of this world. He was not indifferent to the real needs of people. He was not indifferent to the responsibilities that he had. He was not, as is often said, so heavenly minded to be of no earthly good. But the anticipation of the world to come consumed him, heart and soul. Beloved, the best is yet to come. This is our hope and our meditation and our focus, and our mindset, we remind one another. We can get down so quick when things, things don't go well, right? 
We can get down long in the face. All that stuff is utterly tangential (laughs) to the great reality that all is well with our souls and there will be glory. That train is coming down the track and it is not coming slowly. This is why Paul says for me to live here, well, it's Christ. (laughs) But to die is gain, right? That's a new depth of knowledge of Christ. When Paul would see him as he was and see him face to face. Flip over to the right one book, chapter 3 of Colossians. Speaking spiritually again, he says here, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, and again, his point is, since this is a spiritual reality that you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in what? In glory. Jesus said, great is your reward in heaven. Not now and not here. I know you say, hey, there's a lot of life that's pretty good. And I say to you, yeah, and it pales in comparison because that reward is eternal. That reward is is glory beyond your wildest imagination. Jesus also said to us, didn't he, that we are to lay up our treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Peter tells us a little bit about this inheritance we're to receive. And he says, look, it's reserved in heaven for you an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and which will not fade away. That is to say it's greater than anything you've known in this life. And this is why Peter says you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. I know those trials bring stress. I know they come in a variety of of ways and they are pressing upon you, but you are rejoicing in the midst of that because they're only temporary, they're necessary according to God's design to prove forth your faith and the end result, he says, will be the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. just moved through in our men's leadership group, the pastoral epistles, and it just struck me again. Here's Paul at the end of his life. I hope my deathbed looks like this. Paul says to Timothy, look, buddy, my son in the faith, I'm handing you the baton 
and you have got to fulfill your ministry. Don't back off. Don't back away. I know it's hard, but you got to think like a soldier. You got to think like a farmer. You got to think like an athlete. There's all that expenditure of effort and pain and sweat and toil and discipline, labor, share in the sufferings of pastoral ministry, carry it out, finish it, fulfill it, do it, he says. I know it's painful. And then Paul says this For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. Do you hear the sigh of relief in Paul's voice when he says it? That was a fight. That was a battle. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. And in the future, oh, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. before the crown but hear this beloved Paul is not so selfish as to only think about himself no he is a man devoted to the church of Christ and he says there's an award coming to me on that day from this righteous judge but not only to me he says but to all who have loved his appearing do you love the appearing of Christ Do you look forward to the crown, that eternal crown of glory? Do you anticipate that day? Do you find yourself impatient for the Lord's return? Are you praying, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly? That is the ambition of a believer. That we might be justified by Christ, sanctified in Christ, glorified with Christ. We want to know Christ. Those are the marks of a regenerate life. And if you are his, you know something of Paul's heart in this matter. It may not be as strong as it ought to be. It may not be as realized in your experience as it was in Paul's. But you do have. You can look in the mirror of your life and you can see that there is, in fact, an appetite for these things. To be in Christ, to know Christ, and to see Christ. That, those are the things that... that that, that, that you long for. And just as an appetite is a sign of physical health, so that appetite for those things is a sign of spiritual well-being. If you're a believer, these ambitions will be yours and they will be yours in increasing measure. Paul himself hadn't seen these things realized. And well, I guess we'll get here, Lord willing, next week, but I'll just read it to you. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do is forgetting what lies behind. I reach forward to that which lies ahead. I press on 
toward the call, the prize of the upward call of Christ in Christ Jesus. Do you see it in Paul? Do you see it in yourself? What this morning do I say to you who have none of these ambitions whatsoever? That your life's aim is still to get ahead, to get that next material possession, to get that next experience that will somehow give you a bounce in life, to attain that next advancement, to get the next like on your Facebook page. What do I say to those of you who are still confident in your own goodness and have no desire to know Christ, to know anything of his power? You don't need that. And who would want to suffer? I mean, that, that's certainly not something that appeals to me. This resurrection from the dead stuff, well, that's just fairy tale. What do I say to you? Well, I would say this to you first. There is bad news. And that is that this world is passing away and also its lusts. And to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy with God. But you see, the good news is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish with the world but have everlasting life. And I would appeal to you again to turn away from your pursuit and idolatry of this world and turn to the only God who can save you, who can fill your life, who can make you to know joy, and peace as you have never known it. Yes, it will cost you something in this life to follow in the footsteps of Christ. I would not be like those false teachers who would lie to you and tell you that with Jesus everything is easy. It is not, but everything is good. And everything is only going to get better. There is a glorious end. Jesus said this to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? My friend, nothing is more valuable than your soul. And my appeal to you today is to turn to the giver of your soul, repent and believe in Christ that he might save your soul. He is a willing savior and he receives all who come to him. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Lord, what can we say in light of these things? except that it is the very passion of our hearts also to know you. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen that desire and that we might be baited day by day as we look into your word to see still more of your glory, that we would be transformed from glory to glory. And Lord, that we might ultimately know you, to know the fellowship of your sufferings, to know that dynamic power that raised you from the dead in our own lives, that we might lead a life that's worthy of the gospel and that we might know more of the righteousness of Christ in our life by, by personal experience. And Lord, in all of that, we anticipate that great day of your return and we do pray that you would come quickly. Lord, thank you for your mercy on sinners that you restrain and you wait, that you're patient, not wanting any to perish. And Lord, that you have promised 
that you will lead all of your sheep out and you will lead them out by name. You know them and they know you. And Lord, we walk in this sweet fellowship and we praise you for it. We worship you, we adore you, and we're grateful that you call us your own. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and give glory to our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.